Recovery Elevator, Episode 7. I finally surrendered, and I got honest right then, and I said, no. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator. My name is Paul, and according to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker, I have been sober for six months, two weeks, and six days. Currently, it is 2.10 in the morning, and I am at the Lima International Airport. You might hear the operator call for a flight to be boarded, or people carrying their luggage down the hallway. I'll get to why I'm recording this podcast in the airport as we speak later. But first off, I want to talk to you about relapse and how relapse happens way before you take that first drink. Now for some, not myself, but for some people, relapse is not part of their story. They quit drinking and they stick to it. They do all they can to stay sober from the start. But for me, it has been part of my story. And I don't think relapse happens when you take that first drink. I had met a guy whose sobriety date was about two days before mine, and we were right around 60 days sobriety, and I took a week trip. I came back, and he was in a cast, and he had a limp. And when we chatted outside, I was like, man, what happened? Well, he got hit by a car when he was drunk. He relapsed. And I said, what do you think happened? And he said, well, I don't think it's really worth my time to go back and think about what happened. I just need to keep moving forward. Yeah, I agree. You can't dwell on the past. But a mistake or a relapse or a slip-up is really truly a slip-up if you don't learn from it. In my experience with my relapses, there have been blatant clues before I take that first drink. A lot of it with me is with my routine. If I don't go to bed and wake up at the same time every day or within 30 minutes, it slowly starts to build up. And for me, it has a lot to do with my diet. If I don't eat right for a couple days, it really affects mentally how I feel. And most importantly with myself and what I've heard from a lot of other first accounts from other people is life happens, right? You just get too busy to continue to go to AA meetings. You get too busy to put your recovery in the front seat and recovery is in the back seat. And that is when the relapse is already starting to take place. Now, I'd like to talk to you about why I'm doing this podcast in the Lima International Airport at 2.20 in the morning. Well, first off, this airport kicked my ass last year. Around this same time one year ago, I was asked by one of my best friends if I could help chaperone a trip at Machu Picchu. He's a high school teacher in Colorado and his class has been fundraising all year to go learn about the Incas. And we went last year to do the Machu Picchu Trail, which was incredible. And I'm here in the same airport to do the Machu Picchu Trail. So here's what happened nearly 365 days ago and why I am filled with gratitude that my life is so different today at this very moment. Yeah, the audio quality might be poor, but I've got to do this right now. Last year, I joined the group one day late and met up with them in a town about an hour and a half outside of Cusco where they were working at orphanages. So in my thinking, I knew I was going to have to get as much sleep as possible on my overnight flight from Denver, Colorado to Lima, where I have my four-hour layover, and then I take the hour and 20-minute flight to Cusco. So I get my hands on an Ambien, and I pop the Ambien right after we take off from Denver. Usually these Ambien's work like a charm and knock you right out. And I had been sober for about 12 to 14 days, I think, at that moment. And the Ambien just didn't quite have the effect. So in my justification or rational judgment at that moment, I decided that it would be worth it to have one glass of wine because I needed to be refreshed. I needed to be clear-eyed, full of energy, and ready to go in the morning. So I had one glass of wine on the airplane. Well... 
that one turned into two, three, and four, and five. And I show up at Lima International Airport at 3.30 in the morning, and I say I'm done. But that wasn't the case. I went to another restaurant from 3.30 to 5.30 and had another eight to 10 beers. This is in the morning. And after I had that last beer at the restaurant or cafe or whatever you call it at that time of the day, morning, night in an airport, I swore to myself, okay, we're getting on this airplane and we are done. We are sobering up and we are done. But guess what? The flight attendant came down with the cart. And again, I rationalized it. I justified it. I said, if I have a glass of wine, I'll be able to sleep for 45 minutes. It's a short flight, but I need to get that rest. And I had two or three more drinks on the airplane while I'm en route to meet up with several high school students as a chaperone. The plane lands and I'm walking off the airplane and I'm telling myself, okay, we are done drinking, Paul. Get your shit together. This is pathetic. So I grab my bag and I walk to the front of the airport where there's a bunch of people holding signs and there was a guy holding a sign with my full name on it. And I made eye contact with him, but real quickly I realized he had no idea what I looked like. So I looked at him, I looked down at the sign, looked at him again, and then I looked to the right. Yes, there was a bar there as well. So I walked right past the guy holding my name on a piece of paper that my best friend had sent all the way from the other town to come pick me up. And I went and crushed and slammed two more beers. And I'm watching this guy just scan the audience holding this piece of paper up. And I'm slamming him as fast as I can. And I walk up, hey, or I should say, hola, let's do this. And we get in the car. And in the car, I am done drinking, right? I've said this a couple times already, and I kind of sound like a broken record. About an hour into the drive, I'm like, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. I don't, but I know there's a gas station that will have more alcohol. So he pulls into a gas station that isn't quite your traditional gas station, right? Like a 7-Eleven that I was thinking. And I walk through the store hoping to see grandiose displays of Coors Light and Budweiser, but they're not there. So I make it to the bathroom. And like I said, I don't have to go to the bathroom, but I open the door crack and I'm scanning the entire store and I see across the street is their traditional gas station. And that's when I did have a little moment of clarity and something smacked me. I'm like, oh my goodness, the sun has been up for an hour. I'm still drinking. I'm 45 minutes away from meeting the high school kids. Get your shit together. So I got back in the car and I sobered up on the way to go meet 15 high school kids and my best friend as a chaperone, you know, and I wasn't really detoxing because I wasn't on a binge before that. But my first day in Peru where I was supposed to be full of energy, I was hung over off zero hours of sleep and I was sobering up. We climbed Machu Picchu and it was incredible. If you've never done it, it's a bucket list item. Get down there and do it. And when the group left, I had planned to stay for another two months down in South America. I was going to go to Bolivia and then to Argentina and then to Chile, which I did. And right when I said goodbye to the bus full of the jovial high school students ready to go back after the spring break and finish their senior years of high school, I told myself I was done. I had eight days of sobriety on the trek. We didn't drink on the trek. But I think within 45 minutes after I made it to my hostel, which is like a traveler's resort. Oh my gosh. If you're 35 and under, you've got to go to some of these mega hostels in South America. But if you're 35 and under an early recovery or an alcoholic, don't go to any of these places. But I think within 45 minutes, I had a beer in my hand. 
And that's how the rest of the two months and the summer of 2014 went. But I'm doing it. I'm here in the same airport that dominated me last year, and I am not drinking. I even walked past the same cafe that I crushed several beers at at four in the morning last year. I'm sure the employees are like, oh, it's Pablo. We need my cerveza in the coolers. But I am not going to be hungover when I show up and meet the kids this year. It's going to be a lot of fun because being sober is so much better. And Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome back to the show, Rochelle. Rochelle, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. And Recovery Elevator, I say welcome back to the show for this reason. The most important steps of really the majority of 12-step programs are 1 and 12. And number 12 is working with alcoholics usually. And for this podcast, it's just that. For me, I work with other alcoholics all the time. And I did a previous interview with Rochelle that was about 15 minutes long. And then I edited it, and that takes another 35 to 45 minutes. But at the end, I wanted more. I personally wanted more of Rochelle's story. And I had more feedback from other listeners emailing and saying, hey, there's so much more that we want to hear. So thank you, Rochelle, for joining us again and doing this interview again. So let's just get into it, Rochelle. How long have you been sober? Uh, 19 months. 19 months. Congratulations. Now let's talk about your elevator. When did you decide it was time to reach out and push that button and stop the elevator from going down and getting off? Um, When the final decision came that I had really had enough is... um, when I had, well, I had been drinking um, pretty heavily for a while, and one night I had gotten into an argument with my husband because he had forgotten to pick up my antidepressant at um, a pharmacy, 24-hour pharmacy. So I thought it was a great idea on a night that we had a horrible storm to take off drunk in my car. Um, I'd already been drinking, I don't know, I'd maybe already had 12 beers but I packed some more to come along with me. Plus I had taken an Ambien and I was going to head into town. We live in the country and, um, and I was going to go pick up my prescription and I passed out at the wheel. I uh, drove through a field, launched my large vehicle up and over a road and smashed down um, and awoke to um blood going down my face and sirens around me. But I thought, I wonder what's going on. I should probably go help, not realizing that I was the problem. And I, um, anyway, I, I was taken into the ambulance and wounds were bandaged up and everything and taken into the hospital. And when I got there, this was a hospital where I had worked. I had actually been in a management position and there were people there who had drawn their blood um, as, to be my quote unquote friends to help me through this and so that I would not get, get convicted of a DUI and it was just it was then it scared me um, I had been suicidal for quite some time but when death was really right there in my face like I could have died from this car accident I I just, I finally surrendered and I got honest right then. And I said, no, don't submit your blood. I did this and I need to take accountability for this. And, and that was the moment and it changed my life forever. Rochelle, you said two words 
in that answer that tells me, <laughs> you know what this is all about. And that's honesty and accountability. And what was that like when you finally said, look, I'm done. I, I'm done fighting this and I'm willing to take consequences. How did that feel? You know, you would think it would feel bad, but it felt so good. It felt so good to finally not hide behind this mask and to be free, to be honest and to just surrender. It was like a thousand pound weight lifted off my shoulders. It, it really felt good. Rochelle, when I first hit upload to iTunes, I had that same feeling. The thousand pound gorilla began to unclimb and unravel himself from my shoulders. And I know the feeling. Mm -hmm. Rochelle, what sounded like a scene from a Dukes and Hazards movie or episode <laughs> was actually your life. You had a car airborne with Ambien in your system, 12 beers on your way to prescription. That's not a movie script, listeners. That's real life. And I can tell you right now, I have personally mixed Ambien with beers and alcohol and missed flight layovers. And, and, and this is common stuff. So Rochelle, mm -hmm. tell me about your drinking habits. And, you know, with the word control, did, did you ever try to regulate your drinking? For example, switch from hard alcohol to just beer, not drink before a certain time of day. Tell me about that stuff. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely tried to control my drinking. Um, I had a rule that I would not drink before 5 p.m. because if anybody was to see me or smell me um, drinking um, before 5 p.m., I thought that would be improper. But everyone would accept somebody who drank past 5 p.m. because people drink in the evening. So I would literally watch the, the clock and I would be counting down. And there were times that I would be like, well, you know, 4.58, that's basically fine. I can start drinking now. And But once 5 o'clock hit, I mean, it was, I, I, I drank strictly beer. I always stuck with beer and, um, and I was just one beer after another, um, until I would pass out. I mean, and I would go out on my deck and, um, I would vomit because, you know, my stomach was getting so overloaded and then I would think, great, I have more room for beer now. So I would drink again and I just drink and drink and drink until, I would pass out. And then it came to a point where I wasn't really passing out that well from the alcohol. So I went to my doctor and said, I'm having trouble sleeping. So he gave me Ambien. So then, oh, I could definitely pass out. I could mix Ambien and alcohol and um, just pass out. Now, Rochelle, when we originally spoke a couple weeks ago, you mentioned the day of the interview there, there was a concrete experience that just said, told you you were doing the right thing and it happened at a gas station where some gentleman got in the wrong car can you can you tell me about that yeah you know it was um i, I just i get these things on you know like almost a daily basis that remind me of the importance of my sobriety and also where i used to be and because i need those reminders of this is where i used to be remember how important it is for me to be sober so I pull up to the gas station and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to have an interview with you and I'm filling up my gas tank and this man opens the passenger door to my car and he starts to get in and I said, hey, hey, get out, get out. What are you doing? And he was just in a stupor and he wasn't being mean. He just had no clue where he was. And so he said, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he backed up from the vehicle and as I saw him walking away, 
he had a box of wine in his hand and I, and my heart just, oh, it just filled with empathy and sympathy because I thought, yep, buddy, that was me. I got in wrong vehicles too, you know, and it was when I was drinking and you're drinking and, oh, I hope you find a way out of it. Yeah, it was a reminder of my sobriety and how important it is that I no longer get into the wrong vehicle anymore. Every day I have those same aha moments where it's it's just concrete evidence that I'm doing the right thing in my sobriety as well. And that's incredible that happened moments before we did our first interview. Tell me about the geographical cure, for example. I understand you moved to Montana and right now you're you're parked on top of a hill in, in farm country. What's it like living in that type of environment where drinking is somewhat contemporaneous? It's just a way of life. It is. Now, I didn't move to Montana. I'm, in, I'm a native Montanan. I, um, I just had always lived in towns in Montana. Okay, but then I moved to the country. Um, you know, I married a farmer, and, and it was amazing to me the way beer was everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, at a three-year-old birthday party, there would be a cooler of beer for the parents, and then there would be a cooler of pop and juice and stuff for the kids. It was everywhere. And so it was readily available. My husband even kept a, um, a little fridge sitting out on his porch, stocked full of beer, just in case somebody stopped by. And so, you know, it was readily available to me. The difference was that some of those people could just have a couple of beers and stop. And I couldn't. I would have a couple of beers with them. They would go home and I would continue on. And um, it, it just, it, I thought that everybody out here drank because that, those were the people who I associated with. Mm-hmm. When I got sober, I found not everybody drinks. There's actually a large group of people who don't drink like that. And, and I surrounded myself with new people. And that's what you got to do in early sobriety or just sobriety in general. And you just said it. I imagine surrounding yourself with new people is some of what getting outside of your comfort zone. Can, can you talk a little bit about that of how you have to get outside of your comfort zone, which we talk about in episode two, listeners, if you really want to be successful in sobriety? Yeah, you know, when, when I really started taking my sobriety seriously and, and it was told to me, you have to, um, you know, have new playground and new playmates. Basically, don't hang out in the old places with the same old people. I really think I went through a bit of a grief process there because I, I wanted to still be a part of. I wanted to be able to go to these places where everybody was still drinking and partying and doing all of this stuff, but I just wouldn't. I would just drink Diet Coke or water. And that didn't work. I felt incredibly uneasy in these situations. I mean, like physically uneasy. I would sweat. I would shake. I would have panic attacks and feel a need to just escape these situations. So when I decided that I've got to stop going to these situations, I I don't know how this came into my mind, but I thought I am going to choose daytime friends. I'm not going to choose nighttime friends um, because nighttime to me was drink and party. Daytime to me was kids, family, and basically activities that didn't involve alcohol. Because remember, I never drank before five. And honestly, this sounds horrible, but 
it was kind of people that irritated me before when I was drinking. I thought of them as like goody two shoes. And, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to be around people like that because I thought, you don't know my pain. You don't get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I've found by being around those kind of people is yet, that, yes, they do get pain. And they do understand the struggles that people go through in life. They just don't solve it with alcohol. And I can have open and honest conversations with people who are not even alcoholics, who have become dear friends of mine, um, once I finally decided to quit judging and to learn to accept and to learn to open up and be truthful and honest about who I am. And it's brought wonderful friends into my life. And I'm still polite and congenial with the old nighttime friends. I just don't hang out with them anymore. And when I hear people talk about, you know, well, I'll just be the DD for the group of the, the drunk friends. I, I just cringe because I, I just think, oh, no, it's, it's got to all change. I mean, there's a line in AA, which is the program that I follow, that says, are you willing to go to any length? And if you are, you know, then that's when you are going to achieve this sobriety. Um, and I had to decide, am I willing to go to any length? And that means getting outside of my comfort zone. And I was. I was willing to because my life was so horrible before and I wanted it to be better. Daytime friends. I actually jotted that down on my notepad. Rochelle, at the time of this recording, I've been sober for 191 days and that is a challenge for me as well. I need to get outside of my comfort zone more and find just that daytime friends. I had plenty of nighttime friends and a lot of those are still really good friends, but daytime friends getting outside my comfort zone even more. Now, Michelle, how did your drinking impact your relationships with family, friends at work, with the spouse? And did anyone ever suggest that you might drink too much? The relationship that was affected the most was the one between my husband and I. Yes, he would say to me, you know, why can't you just stop drinking? You know, um, we, we spend a lot of time at the lake during the summer. And I would, you know, I would drink continuously. The five o'clock rule didn't apply at the lake. It was, you know, you could we call them white trash mimosas and we would mix beer and orange juice and we would start drinking in the morning. I mean, as soon as I got up, it was a white trash mimosa at the lake and I would drink all day long. And here I was this drunk mom with small children up at the lake. And anyway, and he would say to me, why can't you stop? We drank all weekend. Why do you need to drink on Monday? And I'm like, I don't know. I just do. And I was angry And he was anxious and his anxiety irritated me because I thought it was all him. I didn't know I was causing his anxiety. You know, he would tell me, you know, Rochelle, the perfect picture of you is a baby on one hip and a beer in the other hand. Oh, wow. And that's the way way I parented for two years, you know. And I remember when my son, I think he was probably, what was he, about four years old. And he said to me, Mom how come you like those drinks so much that only grownups can have? And that just, it hurt. It hurt so much when he said that. And I thought, oh my gosh, even my four-year-old son is noticing this. 
Yeah, what was your answer? I know you know it wasn't a serious answer to a four-year-old, but I think you said it earlier that with justification, and you said it was all mm-hmm. him with his anxiety problems with your drinking. And justification is in, wait, I'm at a lake. You're supposed to drink white trash mimosas from the instant your eyelids open in the morning to when you pass out at night. I love it. Yeah, and the justification piece that we... You know, we confirm in our own minds. It's it's just incredible. Now, tell me what it was like when you first quit drinking. What was it like for the first 24 hours, 72 hours, the week, first month, and, you know, the first year? Well, okay, the very first time I I tried to drink, um, I mean, stopped drinking. I should say not Mm -hmm. tried to drink. The first week was really, it was really hard. It It was really hard. I was full of shakes and nausea and sweating. And um, all I thought about was, if I would just drink, all of these symptoms would go away. And somehow I made it through the first week. And that was by, I attended AA meetings, and I really basically white knuckled it. I didn't have a higher power in my life at that time. So I, I didn't have, you know, a way to reach out to a power greater than me because I thought I was all powerful and boy, I was going to control this and make it all better. And doing it that way, I relapsed five months later. And then after a stint of drinking again and life getting horrible and me getting suicidal and my husband getting anxious and life being chaotic, that's when I then wrecked my vehicle and I went to treatment after that. And my withdrawals were so severe that they kept me in the detox unit for uh, three days because my blood pressure was skyrocketing and my shakes wouldn't stop. And so after three days, finally, the shakes started to come down and my blood pressure normalized. And then I was sent out into the regular part of the treatment facility. And so those were the two different ways that I uh, got off of alcohol. What was it like in the first month? The first month, I guess I could go for the the first month in treatment. The first, okay, the first month in treatment was not at all what I expected. Mm-hmm. I thought when I was in treatment, we were going to talk about my drinking and poor me, and if you know other people had my life, they would drink too. And it wasn't like that at all. I um, had lost two very significant people in my life, you know, who had died. And one was my brother. When I was 16 years old, he committed suicide. And then the other one was my, my former husband was killed in a plane crash. And, um, I had never really fully dealt with my grief. And I spent a lot of time in treatment, learning about alcohol and drugs and that kind of stuff and learning about sobriety. But really the majority of my time I spent working through my grief because I believe that alcohol is but a symptom of what we're going through. And we just, you know, us alcoholics, we find alcohol as a solution to numb something. And I was numbing really deep-seated pain. I really felt like I had a black hole in my chest that no one could, no one could penetrate. And by working through my grief in a safe environment like a treatment center where I was, oh my gosh, after I did that, it was like that black hole was shattered. And 
I had a, now a spot in my chest, my heart that was like open to love and acceptance and acceptance of me, me, a person who I wasn't going to be the old me because my life had been changed. I had experienced significant events with grief Mm -hmm. and I was going to be a new me, you know, a person who was understanding of other people and who was going to do this with a higher power rather than thinking I am all powerful and I need to fix everything. It just opened me up. And that's what the first month was like for me. Wow. Now, I don't want listeners to continuously listen to this podcast based on fear, yet I want them to listen on hope. I want for myself what I want for you, Rochelle, for all the listeners, which is a happy and sober life. But can you agree this this whole subject of alcohol and our recovery, it's a matter of life and death. Do you agree with that? Oh, I 100% agree with this being a matter of life and death um, because there were two ways that I could see that I was, I was going to die from my alcoholism. Well, I guess three ways, actually. One was I was going to die in a car crash um, because I now have a metal plate in my neck from that car crash um, that I was in. Um, you know, I could have ended up paralyzed or dead. That was one way. The second way, I was suicidal on a regular basis. I, was, I could have taken my own life. And the third way was um, physically. When I got there, my cholesterol levels were way high. I didn't know alcohol could do that to you. My blood pressure was really high. I didn't know alcohol could do that to you. Um, you know, I'd always heard of liver disease and, and that kind of stuff, but there were so many different ways that alcohol could have taken my life. And it truly is life or death for me because if I get into that deep, dark depression while I'm drinking, I am going to do something that the healthy, sober Rochelle would not do. And that is 100% why I'm doing this podcast is it's life and death for me as well, Rochelle. And you said it earlier, willing to go to any lengths. Now, I am willing to go to any lengths and then go back and go further. That's that's why I'm doing this podcast because I fully understand it's life or death for me as well. Now, Rochelle, you said something earlier called higher power, and I am finally coming to terms that it is a necessary, imperative thought process. You have to involve a higher power in sobriety, and what does that look like for you, and how essential has that been? Well, you know, the higher power thing, it was really a struggle for me in the beginning. I, I had been raised in a, you know, a loving Christian home with my mother. Uh, my parents were divorced. Now, my father, he was an alcoholic, drug addict, who was an atheist, okay? So, I saw his way of life, and then I saw my mom's loving way of life, and yet I was still struggling. And so, when I first started to, you know, I don't know, try to conceptualize, you know, because I had to figure this out, what a higher power was. The first thing I did was, it was my AA group. I thought the group is more powerful than I am. And these are people, there were people in the rooms who'd been sober for 30 years. And I thought, okay, I'm going to use the group. I'm just going to follow what the group says. And then I continued to discover it further. And I went to nature. And I thought, for sure, Mother Nature is more powerful than I am. I can't control this wind. I can't control this rain, nothing. And so I really put 
my faith into Mother Nature. And then one day, I was at a meeting, an NAA meeting, and there was a man who we were discussing this concept of a higher power. And he had said something that was so profound to me. And he said what he did was he went back to his childhood, way, way back into his childhood before any adult could, you know, could influence his belief in a higher power. And he went right back to that. And that was his belief in a higher power. And at that moment, what I remembered was being in Sunday school and I remembered this picture on the wall. Um, it was a big mural and it was rainbows and birds and children and Jesus in the middle of all of them. And he was very loving. And I thought, go right back there, go right back to mm-hmm. it being about rainbows and birds and love and acceptance and someone who's always there for you. And that's when my growth really started to happen. And that sounds like your own concept of your proprietary higher power. And that, it sounds like innocence. That's incredible. Yeah, I had, I really had to go right back to being, because I think sometimes as alcoholics, I don't know for everyone else, but for myself, it was almost like I had to reparent myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I had to do was go back to my childhood before I had had any negative influence. And I'm speaking mostly about my dad, you know, telling me there is no God. How dare you even think there is? I remember when my brother committed suicide and I said to my dad, you know, at least he's in heaven now with God. And my dad said, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as that. And just shattered me at 16 years old. And so I had to go way back, way back. I mean, I was probably four or five years old when I first saw that mural. And that's where I went back to was the very beginning when no one else had influenced me. It was just me looking at a mural and being so moved by that mural. And that's what it took for me. And thanks for sharing about those those moments with your brother and I, I believe it was your ex-husband in a, in a plane crash. Have you had any moments in, in early sobriety where y- you normally would have drank? And, and how did you not drink? And Because I know in my sobriety, I, I recently had some news in November that a, that a family member, that a very close family member of mine, and I have a small family, it was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. ha- it's going to happen fast. And I'm dreading right. that day. And, and I'm just hoping I have enough tools in my kit to stay sober through this. So has there been a challenge or what, what is your plan when that happens? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your family member. That, that is very difficult. Thank so you. Um, I'll pray for you for that. And, and, you know, the things that drive me to drink aren't catastrophic things. I'm, I'm the kind of gal that if the world is going to end or if there is an explosion or there's a multi-casualty car wreck, you want me there because I, I work well under chaos. Sure. I lived with chaos forever. That's what I know. You know, I know how to handle that. What drives me to drink are mundane, everyday things because what happens with mundane, everyday things with me is I, well, what used to happen is I would bottle them up and I would become frustrated. And let's just take, for example, being a mom, okay? And the kids are driving me nuts. 
They never listen to me. They never pick up after themselves. Ah, oh, poor me. I'm the one that has to clean up this whole house, you know, and I'd go into martyrdom. And, and then eventually I'd say, F it. I'm just going to drink. And that's the stuff that drove me to drink. It wasn't catastrophic things. Mm-hmm. And so what I do now differently is, first of all, I have a sponsor who I talk to almost daily. And I talk to her about those things. And I, and I also have learned to be, rather than passive aggressive, because I would bottle it up, bottle it up, and then wham, I'd go pit bull. You know, I mean, I, you know, yo, kids, me just, you know, I, I would just, I learned to be assertive. And I learned to say how I felt in a constructive manner. You know, mom is feeling really overwhelmed right now because I'm trying to do all of these things for you kids and I don't feel like you're participating also. So what I need you to do right now is I need you to go pick up your toys while I'm making you dinner. And it just became a more construct. I didn't know how to live like that. Uh I knew how to bottle. I knew how to bottle stuff up and then freak out on you, you know, or internalize it, internalize it and then drink, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I've learned a new way to deal with things. And that is just to know how to say things, in a kind and loving, assertive, rather than aggressive way to people. So I don't have to bottle it up anymore. Now, Rochelle, this interview could probably go to the sun goes down because <laughs> I, I, I'm enthralled. You, you'll, 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 you'll stop talking and, and I'll, I'll be like, oh, I'm supposed to ask a question because I want you to keep talking. But we have reached the lightning round where you just okay. give quick, brief answers. But if you can't fit it into 30 or 40 seconds, feel free to keep going. So question number one, Rochelle, what was holding you back from quitting drinking? What was holding me back was the fear of physical symptoms the shaking, the nausea, the anxiety. And then also my husband didn't want me to go to treatment because he didn't know how he could take care of three kids and a farm without me there. Sounded like somebody else had to get outside of their comfort zone as well. Exactly. Well, I truly believe that uh, when you're an alcoholic, I mean, it's a family disease. The people in your family end up being just as sick as you are, just in a different way. All right. Question two, what was your aha moment or when did the light bulb go off and finally you had the courage to quit drinking? Uh, When I wrecked my vehicle and had to have neck surgery, to put a plate in my neck and stitches in my forehead. And I I realized at that moment, I didn't want to die. And my alcoholism was leading me towards death. And Rochelle, what is your favorite resource in your recovery? It could be a book. It could be a mobile app. It could be a 12-step program. It could even be a podcast. My favorite resource is AA. Okay, Rochelle, number four, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received for drinking is one day at a time, get a sponsor, stay in touch with that sponsor. Don't expect that sponsor to reach out to you. I had to reach out to my sponsor Mm -hmm. and to stay connected with other alcoholics. There's nothing better for an alcoholic than interacting with another alcoholic in recovery, I should say, (laughs) and to keep me sober because then I don't feel alone. Then I don't feel like I'm going crazy. I'm among people and talking to people who get it, who get the way I feel and the way I behave. Rochelle, what parting piece of guidance could you give to listeners? I would just say 
honesty is just honesty. Just take a truthful look at yourself as I had to do. And I really had to look at how negatively alcohol was affecting my life and that I had to be willing to go to any lengths to get it out of my life. And once I did, I mean, just the, the joy that came into my life. So I would say honesty is the big thing. Absolutely. And you said a word in your previous answer, alone. Rochelle, you already know this, but you are not alone. And I am not alone. And I felt alone for so long. And that's another reason why I'm doing this podcast is I realize I'm not alone. You are not alone. Listeners, you guys are not alone. In fact, right. you know, 10% of the population potentially is an alcoholic or, or will have the genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic. That's nearly five, six, seven hundred million people, unfortunately. So you are not alone. And Rochelle, thank you so much again for joining us. This has just been a phenomenal way to start my day. My 191st day of sobriety working with you. You Yay. Rochelle, thank you, have been quintessential to my sobriety, and I need to say thank you for that. Well, thank you, and I, and I'm just hoping that you know you continue on with this, and that we reach people who maybe feel that they are alone and realize that they're not, that they're not, and there's hope. They are not alone, and there is hope. Thanks for joining us, Rochelle. Thank you. You might be an alcoholic if you set a deadline before you're going to meet up with a bunch of kids and your best friend in South America to be a chaperone, to climb Machu Picchu, and you continue to heavily drink up to moments before that arrival time, you're probably an alcoholic. And that's me, Pablo. Thank you so much for listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast. Now this time, I really do have to go and get some good quality rest and sleep before I meet up with these high school students and be a chaperone, a sober chaperone. Good night.